Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. When it comes to investing, the methods people use to make choices often aren't rational. So how do you maintain intellectual independence? Hear the full podcast at morganstanley.com slash herd, H-E-R-D. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. Hi, this is Scott Bland, host of the Nerdcast. Today, the Nerdcast feed is being taken over for the debut of Ben White's Politico Money podcast. Ben sat down with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin for a wide-ranging conversation about the likelihood of a tax overhaul in 2017, his friendship with Donald Trump, and his love of the Los Angeles Lakers. Take a listen, and if you like the conversation, you know the drill. Subscribe, rate, and write written reviews of Politico Money on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And the Nerdcast will be back with its regularly scheduled programming on Friday. Here's Politico Money with Ben White. Opening bell in about 20 seconds. Let me just set the stage for you. Money, money, I want more money. You cannot have it all. This whole system is too confusing. Hi, I'm Ben White, and this is Politico Money. We're hopeful to get the tax plan to the president's desk by December, so there's a lot of interest in that. That was Steven Mnuchin at the Institute of International Finance annual meeting. Just five minutes prior to that talk, the Treasury Secretary and I sat down in a windowless conference room at the Reagan Building in D.C. to discuss tax reform, Los Angeles versus Washington, how he became Treasury Secretary, how he got to know Donald Trump. I think I was one of the few people who felt comfortable telling the president it was a bad deal and we shouldn't do it. Steven Mnuchin is a guy that not a lot of people in D.C. really know all that well. He kind of came out of nowhere to the Trump campaign and then to become Treasury Secretary. So today we're going to try to get to know him a little bit, as well as dig into some of the more wonky issues in, in tax reform. So this is my first podcast. I'd love to hear from you what I do well, what I do badly, uh, so we can make this thing great as we we go along. I'm going to bring you the best guests and conversations that I possibly can, but I do need your help. If you like Morning Money and want to support this podcast, do me a solid. Go to Apple Podcasts, rate the show, and even better, write a written review. And while you're there, click that subscribe button so that new episodes will automatically download in your podcast app as soon as they're released. Uh, thank you for supporting me in this show. You can always email me at bwhiteatpolitico.com or tweet at me at Morning Money Ben. You know, I'm always on Twitter. I'll see whatever you say. Uh, and really, I will take it to heart and uh, try to make this thing as uh, best as it possibly can be for me, for you, for everybody. All right, on now to my conversation with Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Stephen Mnuchin, Secretary of the Treasury. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you as the very first guest on the Politico Money podcast. Do you feel incredibly honored to be the first Politico Money guest? I do. And thank you. This is my first podcast as well. Yeah, I should say this is the inaugural podcast for both of us. Uh, neither of us have done this before. We're going to set the stage a little bit for people where you're about to talk to finance leaders from the IIF uh, from around the world about tax reform, uh, which you're still absolutely positively sure you can get done by the end of the year. 
Can we get a rock-solid guarantee on that? And uh, what's the path to get this thing done by the end of the year? Absolute guarantee. And the path is uh, we expect to have a budget approved out of the Senate next week. They'll then go to conference with the House. Uh, once they pass the, the budget in conference, uh, the House Ways and Means will drop the bill and uh, the games will begin. We expect that uh, we'll get it to the president's desk by the beginning of December to be signed. Okay, and you're confident the budget in the Senate is going to pass? You've got the votes to get that done and uh, and move along? No big problems there? Uh, look, it's never done until it's done, but I have a very good feeling and hearing all the right things, and I expect that's going to get done. Okay. Uh, big surprise for you here. I want to ask about one of the president's tweets, which, uh, you know, we never talk about uh, the Twitter feed, uh, but this one is on policy. Uh, President Trump uh, recently tweeted that the stock market is rocking to new highs. Uh, he's very proud of how well he's done in the stock market, uh, records set nearly every day. And in the same tweet, he said, we also need corporate tax cuts. So my question is, how do you reconcile those two things? If corporations are already doing great, stock prices are super high, why do they also need tax cuts? There is no question that the rally in the stock market has based into it reasonably high expectations of us getting tax cuts and tax reform done. Uh, it also has based into it uh, optimism on regulatory relief, which they've begun to see, and there's expectations. So I think to the extent we get the tax deal done, the stock market will go up higher. But there's no question in my mind, if we don't get it done, you're going to see a reversal of a significant amount of these gains. So you're basically saying that uh, Wall Street is priced in that you guys can get this done and stock prices are dependent in part on the successful completion of corporate tax reform. Yeah, I think, I think it's priced in anticipation. So I don't think it's priced in 100 percent certainty. So I think the market will go up. Uh, but it's definitely priced in an expectation of getting it done. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's pull back the lens a little bit. Um, not everybody wants to dive too deep into the weeds on corporate tax reform, though, of course, I do. And I've got some other questions I want to ask you about that. But I think people would be interested in what the Treasury Secretary does every day. Like when you get up in the morning, uh, what are the first couple of things that you do? And uh, what are you worried about in the global economy? Like what keeps Steven Mnuchin up at night? Uh, and what are you concerned about risk? to the U.S. economy and the global economy? Well, I, I, sl I sleep pretty well at night because uh, Mattis keeps me safe. So uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a bad sleeper. Um, I will <laughs> tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying what I don't do in the morning. I used to work out every morning kind of on a regular basis. Somehow or another, I get up at uh, 5.45, and I don't seem to have time to have my one-hour workout. So I, I start the day. Uh, looking at what came out overnight in terms of the news, uh, also looking at uh, an abundance of emails that have come in overnight. Uh, I normally leave my house uh, between 7 and 7.30. Uh, I get to the Treasury, and normally I start my day with what's called the intelligence briefing, the PDB, or the Presidential Daily Briefing. Uh, and, and although, obviously, I, I don't get the same briefing with him, I have access to the same information. So the day starts out every morning with the intelligence briefing. Um, a lot of that is around, uh, I think, you know, I've talked to you about the major part of the Treasury job is managing the sanctions and managing illicit financing. So there's a lot of national security issues that I'm involved in that I start my day with. 
Okay. And uh, in terms of, you know, risks, uh, financial risks around the world, we seem to be in a pretty uh, calm period. Uh, Obviously, the last Treasury Secretary came in, we had the global financial crisis, and it was hair on fire all the time for uh, Tim Geithner. Uh, Not the case now. You've got markets that are doing remarkably well. Uh, The U.S. economy, obviously, you would like to be doing better, still in the 2% to 3%. Uh, We'll talk about this. You'd like to get it 3% or above consistently. Uh, But are there risks in the system somewhere asset prices elevated? Uh, what in the financial world do you kind of look at? What gauges do you look at and, and decide whether Treasury needs to be concerned about them or do anything about them? Well, you know, the one thing I've always said about risks, and I've, I've been in the investment and trading markets for over 30 years, it's never obvious what the risks are at the time. The risks uh, always seem unobvious. Uh, So I'm skeptical that we can predict what the next problem is. Although if you asked me what are the things I'm more concerned about and less concerned, I'm less concerned about credit risk. Where we are in the cycle, I think banks are underwriting loans well. I think if anything, uh, you know, we're working with the regulators to make sure that we we free up some lending standards. Uh, And I'd say the issue that I'm probably most concerned about with is cybersecurity. So we had an excellent session yesterday at the G7. Uh, we had uh, all the finance ministers and all the central bankers in with representatives of private industry. Jamie Dimond came and uh, four or five other people, uh, someone from the London Stock Exchange and, and others. And we talked a lot about cybersecurity. I think that is a significant risk to everyone, including the financial system. Okay. And obviously, we saw that in the Equifax breach, something that's on everybody's mind right now. Uh, Talk to me about your relationship with President Trump. When did you first uh, meet him, get to know him? Talk talk us through that story, uh, the the Stephen Mnuchin and Donald Trump story. Um, I I got to know the president uh, over 15 years ago. Um, I think we we originally met through common friends. Uh, I... uh, when I originally met him, uh, we went and talked about a, a piece of business that we were thinking of doing together, um, which we decided not to do. I think I was one of the few people who felt comfortable telling the president it was a bad deal and we shouldn't do it. But uh, as I said, I've known him for over 15 years. We've done some business together. I would describe it as it was more of a social relationship than a business relationship. And uh, I remember when the president was thinking about running Uh, We started talking about that, and he was coincidentally in L.A. uh, visiting one of his properties right before he decided to run. He called me up, asked me if I wanted to have dinner. We went out to dinner, and we talked about him running, and I told him I thought it was a great idea. I think he would have done it anyway, but uh, I was very encouraging. And then once he announced uh, I was in L.A., but when I was in New York, I'd come visit him. For the first few meetings, uh, I gave him advice, but he really didn't need anything from me since he was financing his entire campaign himself. And then, as I've described, I happened to be in New York for the New York primary. Uh, I ended up at the New York primary. He saw me. He pulled me upstairs. I was right behind him on TV. And then the next day, he called me and asked for me to meet him and uh, asked me to be his finance chairman. Gotcha. And did you think from the outset uh, when he was talking about running and then announced, did you think really this guy could win this thing? Because uh, a lot of people in the media and elsewhere thought well, there's very little chance that Donald Trump is going to get the Republican nomination and win. Uh, you were a believer early on? I can tell you the absolute time and the absolute date uh, that I was convinced that the president was going to win. And that was uh, after we were in New York. And as I said, he called me. I was back in L.A. 
Uh, we decided to meet in Indianapolis since it was somewhat midway. Uh, and he asked me to join him at a rally. It was the first political rally I'd ever been to. So uh, we landed at the airport. We got in his motorcade. We showed up at the rally. It was a huge stadium. There must have been 30,000 people there that had been waiting for hours, cleared through security. And as I say, it was like showing up with Mick Jagger to a Rolling Stones concert. The music was blaring. The crowd went wild. Okay, And the president got up impromptu with virtually no notes and gave an hour speech. And when I saw the excitement of that crowd, I left there today and I said, Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States. And uh, you were right about that. Um, so you mentioned you were in L.A. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know that much about your Hollywood career. Uh, you were on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs uh, for a number of years and then went west. Tell me how you got involved in the movie business uh, and what your life was like in L.A. I think people know some of your movies, like Suicide Squad. Uh, they might not know a lot of them. What, what are the favorite movies you produced? And, and talk to me about how you got to be a Hollywood guy. Okay, well, for, first of all, the 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 entertainment uh, business was actually one of my smaller investments. So it, it gets a lot of attention, obviously, given the Hollywood issue. And I'll talk to you a little bit about that. But uh, it was really not why, not at all why I moved to L.A. And in regards to my favorite movies, I'm not allowed to talk about any favorite movies <laughs> since last time I did that. Uh, okay, I got accused of ethics issues in promoting oh, movies. So right. no, I would merely say I have, a, feel free to do that I, I have a lot of favorite movies. Uh, you can go go see any movie you could possibly like. I'm not going to pick a favorite. Um, the reason why I moved to L.A. was uh, in the midst of the financial crisis, the first big bank failure was IndyMac Bank. And I actually was sitting in my office on Fifth Avenue in New York, watching CNBC, and all of a sudden people were lined up around the bank. And I turned around and said to the team, that I, my investment team, I said, we're going to buy that bank. And they said, you're absolutely crazy. And I said, no, we're going to buy that bank. So we put together a team. Uh, the bank was taken over by the FDIC. We went through a very competitive bidding process, and we were awarded uh, that bank in December of 31st of 2008, we signed a 20-page binding letter of intent with the FDIC and wired them a $160 million non-refundable deposit. And we closed on that in March of 2009. Uh, I spent the first six months commuting back and forth. I'd go out every Sunday night and fly back every Thursday night. And uh, about after six months, it became clear we were doing more acquisitions. L.A. was a great place to live, and I ended up moving out there. Gotcha. Um, we're going to get back into policy stuff in a second, but I just want to ask you how you feel life is different in D.C. versus L.A. Uh, these are obviously industry towns. Both of them, L.A. is an uh, entertainment industry town. D.C. is a political industry town. Talk to us about L.A. versus D.C. in your experience. Well, I'd say it is as is, is much the job as it is the location. Um, so, I mean, there's no question being part of the administration is by far the most interesting thing I've ever done in my professional career. I, li I like to describe this as I've had four careers. The first was Goldman Sachs. The second was my own investment business. The third was One West Bank, building a regional bank. And now the fourth is Treasury Secretary. And this is by far the most interesting, the most meaningful. Um, I wake up every day and think about what I can do to help 
the U.S. economy and help keep the nation safe through national security issues. So although I have a little bit of time to enjoy Washington, D.C., I feel it's a very livable city. I live in the city. There's incredible historical resources here. Um, but uh, I don't have enough time to enjoy the city. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. But first, a word from our sponsor. A message from Morgan Stanley. When it comes to investing, the methods people use to make choices often aren't rational. Group thinking and confirmation bias can subconsciously impact your approach. For example, some research shows that people prefer stocks that have easy-to-pronounce ticker symbols. Acknowledging and overcoming that bias helps you make a more informed investment decision. Thoughtful decision-making and following the data can help you maintain intellectual independence. Hear the full podcast at morganstanley.com H-E-R-D. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. Let's get into the tax plan for a minute uh, without, you know, having people's eyes glaze over. Biggest knock on it from Democrats, from uh, some people in the, uh, you know, financial community and elsewhere is that there are tax cuts that are tilted towards the wealthy, particularly if you're getting rid of the alternative minimum tax uh, and the estate tax. Uh, so the question is, how do you fix that problem? Uh, why not just, you know, forget about getting rid of the estate tax and the alternative minimum tax, uh, focus on getting the corporate rate lower, uh, and then rates for average Americans lower. Uh, what is the best way to go about convincing people that this is not a tax cut for the wealthy and corporations at the expense of middle-income Americans? Well, let me just comment on the two priorities of this are, one, creating a middle-income tax cut, and two, making a competitive business tax system. We have one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. We tax on worldwide income. We have this concept of deferral where if you leave your money offshore, you don't pay taxes. So not not a surprise. There's trillions of dollars offshore. But let me just comment, uh, you know, the top 20 percent of the people pay 95 percent of the taxes. The top 10 percent of the people pay 81 percent of the taxes. So when you're cutting taxes uh, across the board, it's very hard not to give tax cuts to the wealthy with tax cuts to the middle class. The, the, the math, just given how much you're collecting, is, is hard to do. You know, I, I would comment on the estate tax. The estate tax is somewhat of an economic issue. It's somewhat of a philosophical issue. Um, you know, people pay taxes once. Well, why, why should people have to pay taxes again when they die? You pay roughly 50% taxes by the time you get done with state and local and real estate every year. You know, why do you have to pay another 50% when you die? So that's more of a philosophical thing. I also think to the extent you get rid of the estate tax, you can have family businesses passed down easily. And you have people who can sell assets and redeploy them properly in the economy and not wait to hold on to them until they die because they're afraid they got to pay various taxes. Yeah, that's interesting that um, you'd make the philosophical argument, the double ta taxation argument, more so than necessarily who the estate tax applies to, because obviously there's the uh, 11 million for a couple that are uh, not uh, the estate tax doesn't apply to. Um, I want to talk quickly about the state and local deduction and personal exemptions. Uh, one of the issues that some people have with the tax plan as it stands now, some issues on Capitol Hill, uh, and then when it gets scored by various uh, you know budget analysts. Um, getting rid of state and local can have the impact of raising taxes on middle, upper, middle income uh, taxpayers in New York, 
New Jersey, where I happen to live, California, elsewhere. Uh, and then if you get rid of all personal exemptions, that can wind up uh, being a tax increase on certain middle-income Americans. Is there a way to tweak those things so there are just no tax increases on people in the, say, you know, 100 to 200,000 bracket? Uh, that's a big political argument for Democrats and others to make, saying, look, we're cutting taxes on the states, we're cutting taxes on corporations, but there is this group of people in the middle to upper middle income who are going to wind up with a bigger tax bill. How do you fix that? Well, let me first say that we're working on fixing that right now. So we're, we're, con- we're conscious of that issue. Um, but again, when you get rid of the personal exemption, you're going to raise the standard deduction and you're going to get child credit. So that issue is really not an issue. What is an issue is what you've described as the state and local deductions. I mean, only in D.C. does everything get an acronym. So that's now called SALT. Um, and th- that is an issue. And look, I'm sympathetic to the issue. I've lived in two of the highest tax states, New York and California. Never thought I could leave New York City and ever end up anywhere higher with taxes. When I moved to California, they were slightly lower than New York City. When uh, I left there last year, they were higher than New York City. So I think the issue is that we think the federal government should get out of the business of subsidizing the states. Now, you know, when I hear these arguments, well, New York and California send more money into the federal government, that's because they have more rich people, okay? So there are two different issues, and people but They're confuse, not really being subsidized, confused. right, if they're sending more money to no, the they, federal they, government. They are, they they are, they are so being, how are they subsidized? They, they subsidized? Because, again, if the reality is you just have more rich people in New York and California, okay, so you're going to get more taxes coming out of New York and California. So the, the, the fact that there's more taxes going back and forth has to do with demographics as much as anything else. The issue of subsidy is if you're living, okay, in a state that doesn't have high state and local taxes, you're you're not getting the benefit of that deduction, and it costs the federal government a lot of money. So I think we fundamentally believe this makes sense. This is the right economic policy. And what we're fine-tuning is the issue of we're not looking for people in New York in California, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and Illinois, to have tax increases, so we're fine-tuning it. But then, you know, then then we get criticized. Well, why are you giving so and so a tax break? And again, we're trying to fine-tune the salt issue so that it doesn't overly penalize the high-tax states. Right. Sometimes you need to get the amount of salt on the dish just about exactly right, right? So you're working on that right now. Either that yeah. or we got to add my, some pepper. That's my our, our lame attempts at tax reform acronym humor. Uh, you can tell that we nerd out on this stuff. Uh, salt always reminds me of the strategic, uh, you know, the nuclear talks where it's salt talks. Um, but now we've got another salt thing. Anyway, it's ridiculous to even talk about that. Um, Baseball for a second because I overslept this morning. It was almost late for our podcast because I was up late watching the uh, Nats lose. Sorry, everybody. Sad. Um, are you a Dodgers guy? And uh, give me your World Series pick. Who's going to play in the World Series? Who's going to win the World Series? Obviously, I'm a Yankee guy. I say Yankees. Uh, who are you with? Yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not a big baseball guy. I'm a basketball guy. Uh, love, love basketball. All right. And your team is? My team. I hate to admit it. But my team is the Lakers, even though they've had a really difficult time in the last few years. But it was super exciting being in L.A. when they 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 had the great 
world's best Lakers for years. The I Kobe mean, Shaq team. The Kobe Shaq team, yeah. and and I mean Kobe was just un, unbelievable. So yeah, he uh, was. He was. I, I do have a Lakers ring from from when they won. Nice. Do you have it with you? I don't. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm thinking of A Rod last night on or several nights on uh, MLB Network, uh, taking his New York Yankees ring and putting it in Big Poppy's face. If I had known funny. you were going to ask me about sports, I would have brought it with me this yeah, morning. Very good. Next next time we do the podcast, you can uh, you can bring that with you. I want to just quickly ask about uh, President's tweets again. I know we don't have a ton more time; just a few more questions. Um, do you wake up and look at his Twitter feed? Is that like one of the first things you do, just to see kind of what the story of the day is? Not that us in the media ever do that. Of, of course, I do. I, I have it set for notifications, him and others. So. So, yeah. yes, the first thing I do is my iMessages and my tweets pop up on my phone. Okay. I want to ask just a little bit of a serious question about uh, Puerto Rico and the uh, tweet that he put out saying that we can't keep FEMA there forever and we can't uh, have our first responders there forever. Something he didn't say about some of the other states hit by hurricanes. Why is Puerto Rico any different, uh, given that it's a commonwealth and these are U.S. citizens? Why would we treat them any differently? Well, First of all, the president cares as much about Puerto Rico as everywhere else, and he's he's very concerned about Puerto Rico. And I do think, and we've been involved at Treasury uh, providing technical advice to Puerto Rico on their bonds, Puerto Rico had a very difficult economic situation before the hurricane. They got a lot of debt that they can't afford. Uh, the debt is effectively in, in bankruptcy. Um, it's a complicated situation with with the economy there, and it's even worse uh, after the hurricane. So I, I think the president's comment is ultimately the state needs to take – well, not the state. The, Puerto Rico needs to take responsibility for rebuilding Puerto Rico, that uh, we can't be there forever. But we are going to be there for a long period of time. This isn't, this isn't going to be an overnight uh, situation. Okay. Um, quickly, I know you're probably not going to give me a satisfying answer on this, but we're all very interested in who the president is going to pick as the next chair of the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, Janet Yellen's uh, term is up in February. She's on that list. A lot of people don't think she's going to get it. Uh, we're told that you're a big fan of Jerome Powell, current Fed governor. Uh, can you give us a sense for uh, who it's going to be, when it's going to be? You know, I was on CNBC yesterday morning. Uh, legal note, not promoting CNBC, just factual comment. Feel free to promote CNBC. I'm a contributor there, so you can do that all you like. And I was asked the exact same comment, and I'll give you the exact same answer, which is, uh, first, I'd be disappointed if you didn't ask me, so I understand. But uh, obviously, I'm going to give you the same comment that I've continued to give, which I am participating in the meetings with the president uh, for him to consider various people. It would be inappropriate for me to make any comments about those confidential meetings. The president hasn't made any decision. He's actively involved in this process, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's something that will be concluded in the next month. Doesn't he, does he think Janet Yellen's done a good job? Like, why not just keep Yellen? Do you think Yellen's done a good job? I think again, you have a pretty good relationship. Again, with her. I, I do a very good relationship with the chair. Uh, I meet with her once a week, which is consistent with what other Treasury secretaries do. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's obviously being considered like a lot of other people are being considered. But it would be inappropriate for me to make any comment as to what the president's thinking is. Okay. I got two more things, one wonky, one non-wonky. The 
uh, wonky one is on the assumptions that you make about what tax reform is going to do for the economy and for growth. And you've argued that uh, we could pay down the debt by a trillion dollars based on the tax reform plan. And that assumes we get 3% growth every year for 10 years, something that you know we haven't done in a long time, very hard to do. What gives you so much confidence that you could get a tax reform bill done, get this kind of consistent economic growth in a way that would actually reduce the debt, not inflate it? I don't think that's a wonky question at all. I think that's well. well thank you. I appreciate that. I think that that's actually a quite quite intelligent question. So for, first of all, um, let me just give you the simple math. I've gone through the math. Uh, the Senate f- budget uh, reconciliation will be a trillion and a half dollars negative. That's on a static basis to baseline. There's a half a trillion dollar difference between policy and baseline. Those are things that get rolled over every year. We think that what we should be comparing the tax proposal to is policy and not baseline, which is a technicality. That takes the difference down to a trillion dollars. And we do think there will be $2 trillion worth of growth. So we'll go from minus a trillion to positive a trillion and have a trillion dollars to pay down the debt. Um, And you're right. We're close to 3%. It's actually 2.9% over a 10-year period of time. We scale up to 3 and we stay there. And in post-World War II modern economy, um, for very long, considerable periods of time, we've been at those levels, particularly coming out of recessions. So uh, we fundamentally believe we should get this growth. I I would say the president actually thinks we should get significantly higher growth, but we think we've been conservative. And even though people will criticize us on this, I think we've been we've been conservative. And I would just comment that Obama's original budget had had projections that were significantly higher than three percent growth. Gotcha. All right. Last question. And I ask this of everybody is uh, what do you like to read? What's on your nightstand? What are you reading right now? Are you a history guy, fiction guy? What kind of stuff do you like reading? You know, I, I love to read biographies. So uh, I, I just I, I love learning about people. I think it's a great way about learning about history, learning about people, learning about what moves things. Again, I haven't read a good biography in a while because literally I, I on my nightstand is my briefing book for the next day, which uh, looks like a biography. It's so big. It looks as long as Hamilton. Have you read Hamilton? Of course I've read Hamilton. Okay, very he, good. Uh, he, esteemed predecessor. He, he's, he, I, have, I have a beautiful uh, painting of him in my office. He stares at me every day, and I look at him for great advice. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, thank you so much for being the inaugural guest on the Politico Money Podcast. We're really appreciative and hope to see you down the road. We made it through my first show. Incredibly excited. Uh, I'd love to hear about the ups and the downs. I did the best I possibly could, but the show is going to keep getting better and better, so keep tuning in. Uh, I want to thank Secretary Steve Mnuchin for joining me, uh, to Bridget Mulcahy for being incredibly helpful in producing this show and walking me through what is a completely new process for me. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and remember, subscribe, rate us, write that written review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back again next week. We'll keep getting better. Please keep tuning in. We're probably now, I think, closer than ever before. <laughs>